This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Welcome to Critics at Large, a podcast from The New Yorker. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry, And I'm Vincent Cunningham. Happy New Year to you both. We made it. Uh, barely. <laughs> but yes. Sort of. We've done it. We did it. We've, we've made it into 2024. <laughs> yes, here we are. Each week on this show, we make sense of what's happening in the culture right now and how we got here. How did you guys get here? Are you guys there? <laughs> <laughs> on foot. <laughs> uh, no, but we, we are all obviously, writers, and at least for me, as somebody engaged in a creative pursuit, I'm always interested in how work like ours is depicted in the wider culture. So one thing I did during the break was watch a lot of the big movies I wanted to catch up on, you know, the big prestige Oscar contenders, and many of them, I realized, are trying to do just this, dramatize some aspect of the creative process and what it means to be an artist in society. For example, there's Maestro, the movie about the great composer uh, Leonard Bernstein. Maestro. Maestro. If summer doesn't sing in you, then nothing sings in you. And if nothing sings in you, then you can't make music. Something she told me. Hello, I'm Lenny. Hello, Felicia. Bradley Cooper is Maestro. Maestro. <laughs> what else, though? I mean, there's a couple, some others, right? Oh, yeah. Um, there's there's May, December, um, Todd Haynes's. Film, which is, you know, sort of a process piece about an actress trying to get inside the mind of the character she's portraying on film by visiting her and, and insinuating herself into her life. It's such a pleasure to meet you. You are so sweet. We're so happy to have you. Thank you for doing this. It's so generous. Well, I want you to tell the story, right, don't I? There's also, speaking about writing and writers, there's also American fiction, um, Cord Jefferson's debut. Yeah feature uh, starring Jeffrey Wright, which is about a struggling novelist who's trying to find his place in an industry, in a publishing industry that seems primarily interested in uh, black stories that traffic in stereotypes. Monk, your books are good, but they're not popular. Editors, they want a black book. They have a black book. I'm black, and it's my book. You know what I mean. And so it's a sort of satire of that and, and deals with the work of writing. That's right. And so today we're going to talk through each of these films and look at the picture of artistic life that comes through in each of them. And I will say one thing that's fascinating to me uh, and I've been thinking about a lot is that in the past, a lot of artistic protagonists in movies have tended to be kind of mysterious or enigmatic or even like monstrous in some florid or interesting way. Yeah, like a larger than life. That's right. That's right. I'm thinking about uh, Jamie Foxx's depiction of Ray Charles, where he's kind of, you know, the sort of enigma of talent is kind of dripping off of him. Um, I think these new films, on the other hand, actually try to demystify the process of making art 
or at least the life an artist leads. The artists in these works are kind of just normal people, people doing their work, wading through everyday problems or the frustrations that they have with the industries that they work in. And so I wonder if these depictions are evidence of a wider shift, right, in how we think about, quote-unquote, the artist in our culture, whether they give us some new way of thinking about genius and individual talent. So this week on Critics at Large, who is the artist today? Ooh, let's find (laughs) out. So first of all, I just want to ask generally, how do you feel about movies about the creative process? Like, how do, is that something that draws you? Does it make you not want to see it? Is it just kind of a neutral thing? What's the? I think you know? I think it's something that's um, that I am drawn to, but I also think that it's something that's difficult to get right, and so I feel like I kind of have a healthy suspicion of the way it might be depicted, you yeah. know, whether it's, like, mythologized or idealized in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Love them. Love them. <laughs> just, just like, <laughs> flat out? I knew I was going to be asked, so I just decided to jump the question. <laughs> um, do I love them flat out? Well, I love the subject because art making is one of the great mysteries, and it is going to Mm -hmm. remain a mystery. And I think it's a mystery to the people who do it as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a mystery that I, frankly, really enjoy writing about as uh, both a critic and as a reporter because it is different for everybody who does it, and to try to get close to the process is exciting. That said, like, (laughs) are there crazy, terrible pitfalls that these movies can often fall into? But of course. Sure. Um, and I hope we will discuss many of them. But in general, yeah, sign me up. I think it's like, <laughs> you know, just, just, to, just to piggyback, Alex, on what you were saying about the difficulty of conveying what it's like to make art and mm-hmm. what the creative process looks like. I think this, uh, you know, parallels the general problem of portraying psychological interiority, right? Because mm-hmm. there's stuff that happens on the outside, whether it's like, a painter, you know, like with, you know, furiously, noodle, furiously uh, you know, going at the canvas. Ed Harris is Jackson Pollock. Exactly. Ed <laughs> Harris is Jackson Pollock. Or, or, you know, or anything else or a musician or a writer. You know, there are like the things that we can see and then there is the actual core of art making, which is within. And I think that's where the, the, the real challenge Well, often the sort of mystery of art making, which is often invisible, right, is substituted for the recognizable beats of a career, right? This is why, like, movies about artists tend to, like, fall into another genre, which is the biopic. Mm -hmm. It's like, and Mm -hmm. then they got a record deal, and then they realized the record deal was bad. (laughs) So, like, that's how it's usually it it takes on those beats, and that can be a pitfall, which is, like, maybe we can start to name names here. Um, Maestro, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Starring and directed by Bradley Cooper. Um, by the way, Bradley and Cooper. And co-written by as well, I think. Yes. Co-written right. as co-written. well. And one thing I would say is that this movie is not a biopic. It is something else, something much more impressionistic, something about. It's not um, a biopic, though? I mean, it does take. the. You know what? Give us. Could you give us a synopsis? Sure. 
Um, so Bradley Cooper's maestro uh, begins in the 40s um, with uh, Leonard Bernstein, a young assistant conductor, who then uh, rises to prominence over the course of the movie. We see him at various stages of his life chronologically, and the movie centers mm, predominantly on his uh, long marriage to um, Felicia Montalegra, played by Carrie Mulligan. Alex doesn't make any noise, so I think we'll be fine. No, he sleeps for all day. now. Alexander, our sleeping little sleep baby. It's like he isn't even real. No, he's a dream baby. Sad, darling, and I don't know why. Sorry. You're so tired. I just need to sleep. Yes. Uh-oh. Summer sang in me a little while. It sings in me no more. Then the same visit in the lay. If the summer doesn't sing in you, then nothing sings in you. And if nothing sings in you, and you can't make music. It shows their kind of like wobbly courtship uh, or mostly wobbly because he is also consistently sleeps with men, which he's bisexual. Yeah. And she seems to be aware of this from from pretty much the start. Um, Then over the course of a movie, the reason I was saying, Vincent, that it is a biopic, Mm -hmm. it's true that it doesn't depict every beat of his life and his right, career right. but we have these like points right so we have like we go through the 40s and and 50s where you know he he writes on the town he kind of like uh advances as a conductor the movie jumps from the 50s to the 70s to the 80s he's he's a much older man now uh his his relationship has become um pretty much decimated by his consistent dalliances with with younger men. Alex, I see you're I just got to give a little fact check, which is that by the 80s, Felicia's dead. When did she die? She dies in 1978. Oh, really? And if I may say, yeah. one reason the movie doesn't make this clear is that it's not 100% a biopic. That... I just mean that it's not, not a biopic. It definitely dramatizes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I will. Okay. I, that's that's something for the poster, uh, Brad. If you're yeah. looking for not not a biopic, critics at large, I think we could. But do you know what I mean? There is I know a exactly chronology. what you mean. Right, there are central yeah. Yes, it's going into the exactly. It's going through a life. Yes. And maybe what Alex and I are, are using biopic to mean is just the uh, a, a derogatory term for the kind of biopic that we don't like, which sure, is like the bead by bead, which is a Wikipedia kind of, yes. article made manifest on mm-hmm. screen, right? Um, Whereas this is sort of almost um, a kind of like fantasia on Leonard Bernstein themes. Like there's a moment in the sort of past and all of a sudden there's this thing where a dance scene breaks out. This totally total moment of like lyric expressionism it's mm-hmm. not happening in real life and it's not a, a it's not a depiction of some stage show of his it's just like it drama it a dramatizes number, the you know? the themes yeah. the underlying themes yeah it's just like a moment yeah. of pure feeling that 
you know, director Bradley Cooper is trying to give to us. Um, at the very beginning, in the first scene, he's hanging around with a bunch of guys, one of whom is my favorite composer, Aaron Copeland. And I'm like, oh, Copeland's going to be in this movie. And it's like, no, it's not that kind of movie, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, so I think it disappoints um, uh, those expectations, those genre expectations. Um, but do we think that the form of this movie, the sort of circular back and forth past and present um, form and the at the end of the day, the focus on the relationship, do we, I don't know, do we juice that for any meaning or at least what Bradley Cooper's meaning of what it means to be an artist? Yeah, I think so because, well, I don't know about an artist. Well, actually, yeah, I do think so. Um, you know, in part what we get here, I think the characterization of Bernstein, and I think this is very accurate and true to life, is of someone who was an artist deep, deep within, and that was like the only thing he was going to do or he was going to be. Um, mm -hmm. There is a mythos around that. There's a mythos in the movie. There's a mythos in life. And I do think it's worth stripping some of the way that away. And I think the movie does. But that also is a real thing that exists That's when right. someone is just living and breathing art making, in this case, music. You know, there is that moment in the interview with Edward R. Murrow that, that they that happened in life and that they show on screen where Edward R. Murrow says, what are you? You know, and he says, well, I'm a musician. That's kind of the all-encompassing thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Murrow asks him, do you think that there's, you know, are, are you more the composer Bernstein or the conductor Bernstein? Well, I, su I suppose it's a difference. It's a, a personality difference which occurs between any composer versus uh, any, or any creator versus any performer. Uh, uh, any performer, uh, whether it's Toscanini or Tallulah Bankhead or whoever it is, it leads a kind of public life. Uh, uh, an extrovert life, if you will. It's and he says, how oh, well, you know, like to that. conduct, uh, that's a public kind okay, of thing. And public artists uh, are really extroverts and they go out, they go to parties. There's a whole performance to being them. But to compose, to write, to create something, that's a really inner, interior process. Grand inner life rather than a grand outer life. And if you carry around both personalities, I suppose that means you become a schizophrenic, and that's the end of it. <laughs> uh, Felicia, and I think what the movie is trying to show is the tension that that creates in a life mm -hmm. and that that creates for a person. We see, like, real highs and real lows, and we see just a lot of, you know, I think that the argument the movie makes, and again, I buy this argument, is that the kind of irrepressibility of the personal life, the excess of it, mm -hmm. the need to love all these people, the need to constantly be around people to be loved for sure, um, all of that comes from a similar kind of wellspring to this need to be around music, this center of huge emotion and feeling and beauty. And there is this, um, you know, rapaciousness that can create great things but also can be extremely destructive when it needs to be brought into the private sphere. And so... I really like the choice to look at the private sphere of Bernstein's life in part because it was extraordinary. Like it's, you know, one thing I think, I don't know if the movie gives enough credit in some ways. I think the Felicia Montalegre character is great and I think Carrie Mulligan's performance is really very beautiful. Yeah. Um, but she deserves a lot of credit for going along with a totally unconventional arrangement, especially for the time, kind of going in with eyes open, knowing that she's going to have to share her husband to some degree and that she's, you know, going to, she's not going to kind of get the life that she wishes she was signing up for. You know, Lenny loves you. He really does. He's just a man, a horribly aging man who cannot just 
be wholly one thing. He's, he's uh, lost. I've always known who he is. He called me, you know. And? He wants us all to go to Fairfield together for two weeks. He sounded different. Felicia. No, I... I let's not make excuses. He didn't fail me. It's Felicia. No, it's... It's my own arrogance. To think I could survive on what he could give. In your introduction, Vincent, like you were talking about um, the different picture of an artist. Mm -hmm. And I think this is that, but I also think it is the age-old picture of an artist who requires sacrifice from those around him. Right. Um, And that, to me, is more of a traditional view of an artist relationship. And I thought it was – the thing I really liked about the movie was that it shows the – actual love that's there and also the real sacrifices and pain that right. happen when mm-hmm. when in that kind of an arrangement. So another movie we have to talk about is the new Todd Haynes movie, May, December. Perhaps if you have been subject of a huge tabloid scandal involving the rankest and worst pedophilia, maybe you shouldn't invite an actor into your home. That and more (laughs) next on Critics at Large from The New Yorker. (laughs) Very good. We've all been there before. You're planning a dinner party or having family over or even just cooking for yourself when all of a sudden it starts to feel overwhelming. Uh, I live in a very small one-bedroom apartment with a very small kitchen. I can't figure out what to serve besides water soup at this point. I'm Chris Morocco, food director of Bon Appetit and Epicurious, and this is Dinner SOS, a new podcast from Bon Appetit. Maybe it's a last-minute party with no menu inspiration. A kitchen with no space. A toddler who will only eat buttered pasta. Name your dinner emergency. We're here to help. Here's how the show works. On each episode, we'll take a call from a home cook facing a real dinner emergency. Then, I'll work with one of our editors or someone from our amazing test kitchen to try and solve it. Because cooking for the people you love should inspire joy without a side of stress. Make sure you're following Dinner SOS wherever you're listening now. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, so let's move through some other dramatizations as we were talking about of the creative process. Um, One of them is May, December, directed by Todd Haynes. Um, It was in theaters toward the end of last year, and it's now streaming, as is Maestro, on Netflix. Alex, could you give us a synopsis? Oh, it would be my pleasure. Please. As as usual. Thank you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I simply love to synopsize. Um, 
So May, December is the story of an actress, TV actress, played by Natalie Portman. Her name is Elizabeth. We are, I think we are supposed to understand that she is perhaps not the finest example of her profession out there. She's a bit— She's a TV actress. Yeah, you know, and and, right. and, and in like a sort of— And not prestige. Yeah, not prestige. How, how we used HBO. to think of TV How we yeah. used to think of TV, yeah, exactly. Like, uh, After school specially yeah, kind of CSI situation. CSI perhaps, right. sort of procedural— right. Meghan Markle before before suits before before yes suits era Meghan Markle not exactly not the Duchess Continue, exactly sorry. so Elizabeth is going to be playing the role of Gracie Atherton you who's played in the movie by Julianne Moore a woman who when she was in her thirties married with kids of her own began an affair with a young person named Joe. He was 13 at the time, a classmate of her son's, mm-hmm. who she, whom she met um, while he was working the pet, pet shop where she was employed, and had his baby, then babies, went to jail, married him, and is now living happily ever after, question mark, with him in their <laughs> small community in, is it George? Savannah. Savannah, Savannah, Georgia, yes. Right, so this is a version of the Mary Kay Letourneau story, and we're seeing it both dub- we're seeing a double basically. We're seeing it as it exists in the present, and um, we're also seeing it in a weird version of the past, which is what Elizabeth, the actress, is trying to capture. Do you remember when you first met? I don't really. I don't know. Let me see. Um, I met Joe. Um, well, I remember knowing of his family. I mean, they were the only Korean family in the neighborhood at the Half. time. Yes. Mm-hmm. And my son, Georgie, was in the same year as Joe at school. So technically, I would have met him there, but I don't have any memory of that. Right. Um, the, everyone's pretty close-knit here on the island, and you kind of recognize everyone. I know there was a point when he was friendlier with Georgie, but I didn't really meet him until he came to the pet store looking for a job. It was summer after sixth grade? Seventh. Seventh. And then he started working there after school and on the weekends. And... What's it like with Georgie, your your friendship? I haven't really talked to Georgie much since then. Georgie's very sensitive. He always was very, very sensitive. What's your the Natalie Portman character's idea is that she cannot understand the truth of this frankly incomprehensible situation unless she gets as close to her subject as possible, you know, unless she tries to seduce her husband, unless she tries to imagine what it was like to be this much older woman um, trying to seduce a child. And so it's a little bit of a satire, I think, a dark satire on certain tendencies in method acting to try to go the distance and really, like, merge with your character and believe that you can live instead of perform an experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think also what makes this interesting in another way, too, is that as uh, Elizabeth, Natalie Portman's character, tries to go method, there's also a layer here in which one can sense that Gracie, Julianne Moore, is also trying to sort of method act her own life, right? Yes. Because there has been this traumatic event that she is responsible for, of course, you know, the seduction of this child. And then going on to sort of like make paper everything over and make everything right by look at this like beautiful life that we've built. We've had more children. Uh, we're, We're loved in our community. We're pillars. And so we sense that she is playing a role and 
what Natalie Portman is trying to do is to tear off the mask of that. George is very sensitive. He always was very, very sensitive. What's your relationship like with him and, and your other kids? How is that relevant? Um, it's my understanding that the movie takes place between 1992 and 1994. Am I wrong? So why would you need to know anything that happened after that? Well, um, there are things that exist inside people that don't necessarily come to head until later. And uh, I try and look for the seeds of those things. Um, mm -hmm. Of course I talked to Georgie and to Billy and Cassidy. I'm their mom. Cassidy was just here last, what was it? And we'll see everyone. And so it's kind of a battle of wills between two actresses, in a sense, each, yes. of, each of whom has her own process, right? <laughs> right? And, and, you know, and the movie, I think, takes pains to, like, there are moments that Elizabeth, the actress, is not in. And all of a sudden, it's Joe and Gracie together. And we see just how much <laughs> she's missing. Like, the moment she's gone, there are other dynamics that come into play that are yeah. much more monstrous and strange than the sort of Total pat psychology that yes. the Portman character wants to draw out. Um, there's one more new film I want to bring in, and mm -hmm. that's Court Jefferson's debut feature, American Fiction. Right which I can, I can synopsize, I can take my turn, um, stars Jeffrey Wright as a... Uh, it's, by the way, this is an adaptation of the Perci Percival Everett novel, Erasure. Mm -hmm. But it stars Jeffrey Wright as a writer named Thelonious Monk Ellison, rich with sort of artistic themes, right. mm -hmm. um, who is a sort of struggling novelist who's having trouble getting his newest novel... Uh, picked up by any publisher. And he always, always gets the note that, like, this isn't black enough, that they want something else. And so, as a joke, he writes a book that is initially called My Pathology, not pathology, but with, with an F, F, pathology. Yeah. And it's this very stereotypically sort of posed novel. I be standing outside in the night. Deadbeat dads, rappers, crack. You said you wanted black stuff. That's black, right? I see what you're doing. We sold a book. No. We believe Mr. Lee has written a bestseller. It's a joke. The most lucrative joke you've ever told. Now is Stag a pseudonym? That, of course, yeah. in the world of, of this movie, gets picked up by publishers. He gets a, an amazing advance. He get, like The movie rights are sold before the book even comes out, all these kinds of things. Um, and on the other hand, it's a family story. This is what's kind of interesting about it. So he is one of three siblings, one of whom is played by Tracy Ellis Ross and the other of whom is played by Sterling K. Brown. Both wonderful performances. Um, and it is about taking care of their mother who is suffering from Alzheimer's. And so there's this two-stranded thing of like trying to deal with family life at the same time as going through this sort of maze-like passage through um, art and cultural production and all this stuff. Um, Alex, there's a scene that I want to get your thought about. Um, it actually, uh, the rare scene of showing someone writing is he's starting to write My Pathology, and he's alone in the study of his family's uh, country home, coastal Massachusetts. He's in the study of this house. He's typing away uh, at this 
farce and into the room come the two characters one sort of we learn that they're father and son and it's like you know i hate you i hate my black self it's all these like sort of uh, overly florid like um sort of gangster tropes but they come into the room um so it's like this weirdly like dramatized way of showing art that puts a person in his study and his family home it's like this really this melding of those two realms that I just described, it's really interesting. Did you, What do you think about that scene? And then what do you think about the movie? Oh, I was so into that scene. And I was also extremely into the movie as a whole. Yeah. Um, loved both of them. You know, there are a lot of things I like about that scene. One, right, is this embodiment, which works very well in a movie, of what it means to create something totally fictional and have it exist. Mm-hmm. It It's suddenly these characters are physically embodied, even though they only exist in his head and they're in front of him. And also, I love that they're kind of calling him out, like, no, that's, can't you do better than that? Like, <laughs> let's do it a little better. Yeah, that's really And actually, what it really reminded me of when I thought about it after was the story by Grace Paley, the writer Grace Paley, mm-hmm. who... Oh, the starting... I, I like, dearly love. Well, with her dad? A, yeah, exactly. Ugh, I love it's, that story. Yeah, it's a great story. Well, please tell, I, I don't know it. Yes, oh, it's, it's such a great story. It's called A Conversation with My Father. Mm-hmm. And basically, it... it put me in mind of it because it's doing in words what um, what's going on in this film scene where you see a writer start to create people out of whole cloth. Her dad mm-hmm. basically says it's it's Grace Paley's stand-in character, her character Faith, who represented her through her entire time of writing stories. And her dad says, you know, kind of like, tell me a story. And she starts to create these characters, a mother and her son, and the story gets kind of darker. Oh, the son becomes a junkie. The mother has to do all this stuff to help support no, his the, habit. And to, the right? mom also, the mom wants to get closer to the son, so she right. also becomes a junkie. And her dad says, that's that's no good. That's not enough. There's no plot. Let, let's let's <laughs> get it going. Where Let's give me more. It all gets totally nuts. It all gets crazy. She gets but, him off heroin. Yes. Then the mother wow, remains no, this really a junkie. Made an impression on you. Yes. And the son doesn't want anything to do with her. Right. Oh. So... Oh. <laughs> Outlander, not to, baby. to make it about. Yeah. So you see a few things happen. You see the story in the same way that it does in the American, American fiction scene, kind of start to leave the agency of the writer That's and right. take on a form of its own, mm-hmm. which is, I think, something that all writers crave and also maybe fear. Um, you know, both <laughs> it's it's the best and the worst, having right. no control and also not having to have control. So I just love that in both of these cases, you kind of see characters depart from. Um, the people who've created them. And in fact, what happens in American fiction is, like, that ends up being quite literally what happens with the book. It takes on a life of its own that Monk couldn't have anticipated. And Monk has a lot of contempt for his readers. But that's question two in the film, sort of. You know, should he? I think the film is not totally resolved on this question. But, like... There's a big argument between him and another character played by Issa Rae, Centara James, I believe is the name of the character, who writes the kind of fiction no, no. that he disdains. Um, Centara Golden. Ooh, even, but yes, yes, Centara Golden. Because all the blurbs for her book are like, all that everything she touches is gold. Is gold. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Um, and they they have an argument that seems to be the sort of originary spark for the whole film, which mm-hmm. is like about these questions of representation and market forces and who are you writing for. So, right, the the film is almost dialectical on this point instead of determined in one direction. Yeah. So, who is the artist in today's world? Critics at Large from The New Yorker will be right back with the answer to that enormous question.
The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. So we've talked through these new films and the figure of the artist that appears in each of them. And I kind of want to bring us back to this loose schematic that I posed at the beginning of this conversation about whether we are, in fact, seeing a shift in how we think about the artist in our culture, right? Whether we're letting go some of the ways that we've perhaps romanticized this figure in the past and are possibly moving towards something closer to life. And if so, how do we feel about that more realist picture? Nomi, do you want to start? I think I think there's there's hints of I mean I I do think we are seeing you know like in 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 American fiction surely and also and also in May December and also in Maestro we're seeing certain departures from the kind of idealized heroic um, figure of the artist that we you know a kind of like a lust for life mm-hmm. uh, you know vibe that we might have been used to seeing earlier on. But I do think that in all of these movies, um, there are still more than hints of, like, the artist. <laughs> capital T, capital A. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that makes sense because when you put someone on screen as a protagonist – there needs to be something there that's going to keep you watching. You know, there needs to be some level of centrality and of interest and of um, even a look that the eye can't get enough of, right, which I can think about with with Maestro and and also with, with May, December. And so, you know, when I think about, like, previous works of art, um, that depict the act of creation and the creative person, I can see kind of like the benefits of having a very kind of like deflationary, if that's a word, Mm -hmm. or approach to Mm -hmm. this figure, as well as the kind of like virtue of a kind of sexiness of depiction. Like I'm thinking of two favorites, like – if we're thinking about depictions of writing, my favorite is probably Spike Jones's adaptation mm-hmm. starring uh, Nicolas Cage as a hapless um, screenwriter who is attempting to adapt a story from the magazine we work in, The New Yorker, okay. Susan Orleans, The Orchid Thief, and has a very hard time of, of it. To begin, to begin, how to start. I'm hungry. I should get coffee. Coffee would help me think. But I should write something first, then reward myself with coffee. Coffee and a muffin. Okay, so I need to establish the themes. Maybe banana nut. That's a good muffin. The depiction of writing that we see in that movie 
is the depiction of writing that I've most identified with ever. Really? <laughs> yeah. Because he's basically sitting in front of his uh, of his typewriter, like sweating, <laughs> self-loathing. Mm-hmm. There's a point where he grabs like a tape recorder and it, he's trying to sort of like narrate the screenplay that he's attempting to write and failing. And he's like talking about himself and he's like fat, sweaty, disgusting. <laughs> you know? he, he's just like, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I, I feel it. You know, so there's that type of of of, uh, of depiction, and then there is like I was thinking about the uh, New York Stories anthology from 1989, I believe, where th- there were Scorsese, Coppola, and, mm. and Woody Allen sections all about New York. The Scorsese section, Life Lessons, in which Nick Nolte portrays. Uh, painter who's having a crisis. He has this assistant, Rosanna Arquette, he's in love with. You know, it's all very kind of like conventional to that time. It's yours. I mean, you make art because you have to, because you got no choice. It's not about talent. It's about no choice but to do it. Not any good when you're 22, so who knows? Who cares? You want to give it up. You give it up, you weren't a real artist to begin with. And it's like, you know, he's big, he's like, he's he drinks, he's like, you know, he's a classic sort of like macho artist of like the 80s in this enormous Soho loft. I remember seeing it when I was like, I don't know, 12 or whatever and being like, I'm going to move to New York <laughs> and be an artist, you know, like, big. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it seemed like really attractive, you know. So, so there are, there are virtues in this sort of like heroic depiction, mm-hmm. but to circle back to the question, Vincent, it's it's a seesaw, I think, between right. these two these two ends, I That's would right. say. Yeah. Yeah. Alex? Well, you know, there's so many different kinds of artists um like that you can think of just as archetypes. Like mm-hmm. um, you know, the tortured artist, for instance. Well that guy's well. yeah, that guy's been around since the beginning of time. Um and we love to look at depictions of him or increasingly her. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Let's not forget. Um, you know, there there are other like I'm trying to think of other depictions of art and what it really means to make art and the unglamorous side of it, because I guess it's the unglamorous side that film perhaps doesn't love quite as much. I mean, I think that's, that's another fair. reason why adaptation is really fun because I it's love not that. glamorous at all. I mean, that's very also like I'm thinking about now when Knausgaard um put out, started putting out my struggle. And, you know, I I think there's a lot of descriptions there of kind of like, then I sat down, you know? (laughs) Right. So that's, yeah, that's really true. (laughs) And I got up and looked at an art book. Totally. With autofiction, I think we've seen the total de-glamorizing of the artistic Mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. It really can just be, you know, it can just be spillage. And I have to say, I like both. Like That's yes. what I'm thinking. I like both. That's what I'm, I'm saying. I'm here for the everyday dailiness of, okay, God damn it, it's 5 o'clock. I got to scratch out my one page that I promised myself, yeah. you know, or else loathe myself forever. And I also like the <laughs> larger than life music is exploding for me. And I think in every life of an artist, maybe not every, but you can you can have – both poles. Right. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's a, a, a movie that came out showing up, the, the Kelly Reichert movie mm. starring Michelle Williams, about a kind of small-time sculptor um, who is works part-time as an administrator at a, on a college. It was an art, art school, school. Yeah. Uh, campus. 
and is preparing for uh, for a, a show in a small gallery, and she makes these sort of like ceramic figures. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're in in Portland, I believe. They're not in New York. They're away from the it, kind of the, center. They're away from the center of the art world. Center sure, of the art sure, world. Sure. And her uh, landlord, uh, played by Hong Xiao, is is a. Uh, uh, is also an artist, a more successful artist, and sort of you see the relationships between them and you see the kind of daily struggles of not having hot water and just sort of like very, very much the sort of unglamorous side of trying to be a working artist, especially when the market does not want what you're selling. Joe, the water situation's getting worse. Barely gets lukewarm now, just a few minutes of lukewarm and then cold. That sounds serious. I'm on it. Just gotta get through the squeak first. Shouldn't even be here right now. I've got so much to do. I do too, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do without hot water. Lizzie, I told you you can use my shower. I want my own water working. My show's open on Friday. I'll be free to deal with it after that. I have a show too, you know, I'm just... You're not the only one with a deadline. I know, but I have two shows, which is insane. I love this movie because I I thought it really on Alex, if, you know, and the, the sort of the bothness of it, you know, the unglamorous and the heroic or the the, mm-hmm. the the sort of everyday and the sexy, it did the unglamorous really well. You know? it, it made me wonder because another thing that it does so well um, showing up um, is that it shows the way that an artist is just sort of embedded in a community of many others. She's got a, totally. a, a you know, a, a brother who's struggling with his mental health. For better health. or worse. Oh, for better right? and worse. Yeah. And, and, and all this stuff gets in the way of your work mm-hmm. or, it is, mm-hmm. or something that you have to at least learn to synthesize with the 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 attempt to go about one's work. But yeah. it made me think, you know, whether the artist means something else today because I was thinking about, okay, we are, uh, we, this podcast records from New York City, which is lousy with artists. You know, you know, the, the sort of new figure of the person that's at Starbucks or in any coffee shop near you on their laptop and they're at least in some sort of creative industry like mm-hmm. the, the the graphic designer, the 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 the, the the screenwriter, the creative the, lead, the yeah. whatever it is, um, the screenwriter, whatever. And I wonder if the sort of, um, for many reasons, connected to economy and a sort of bourgeois life or whatever, and also the internet, which makes it easier to be an artist of a kind, right? It democratizes the 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 even the title of artist. Whether when more of us are more familiar with artists, when they're not these remote figures, whether that will start to change representations. Like if, you know, it, just a sort of almost political economic view of like more artists around you, mm-hmm. we look at them differently. And I thought that was part of what was going on and showing up too. It's like, yeah, definitely. she's just around, you know? Yeah. yeah, that's a really interesting way of looking at it, Vincent, because one thing about showing up is, you know, it couldn't take place in New York now because that character couldn't live in New York, basically. And I don't mean to just repeat endlessly the same complaint, oh, New York is unlivable and it's so expensive. And but It's the, worth repeating. The, it's worth repeating, but also the mythos, the cultural mythos mm-hmm. that surrounds a community of art makers. Um, you know, 
I don't think the last time New York had it was in the 70s, but that may have been the absolute height of it when Mm -hmm. Soho was up for the taking and you could just kind of settle in any loft and take over that commercial property and who cares if you had hot water and, you know, all the rest of it. And so that lends itself, that reality, that economic reality also lends itself to a kind of heroic mythos around what it is to make art because paying the bills, the bills are lower and Mm -hmm. life is a bit easier in some ways. I mean, obviously harder in others. Rugged conditions, but there's a heroism around rugged conditions. You know, I'm even thinking of um, Just Kids, Patti Smith's book, which I love Mm -hmm. and which is all about starting off as a musician and with alongside a young photographer, Robert Maplethorpe, where you're living in absolute horrible apartments, you know, out in Brooklyn, but the center is there somewhere and Mm -hmm. you can get it, you can get access to it. You can just walk into the right party or the right bar and get access to it. And I do think that kind of community feeling, I don't know where we're at with that so much, um, especially in cultural depictions like that's right you know if we were to depict what is the cohort that what is the scene right you know that supports artists and makes their work possible right so in some ways i think it could be a lonelier thing like you know there's a lot of loneliness in a movie like showing up because part of it is just the loneliness of the artist doing her own thing um and that kind of the character is very stubborn which i think is true to life for (laughs) for i mean you have to be to be that kind of a person um But there is a bit of a sense of, um, yeah, separation from the scene. And maybe that's natural and normal and and what it's going to be. But, you know, let's just say this. One thing that's very notable about Maestro is the real estate. This is someone who comes along in the American mid-century. And, you know, our colleague Alex Ross has written about this, I think, really well, that Mm -hmm. the U.S. was kind of primed to create a Bernstein, to find and crown someone like a Bernstein, a a great American conductor who could bring that American vigor and energy. I mean, yeah, he has a great life. He gets to live on, he gets to live in the Dakota on Central Park West. You know, this is not Bushwick. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, it's different. No. But what we don't see is the people who didn't make it, right? I mean, they're must have been, even in mid-century New York, many, many musicians who didn't become Lenny Bernstein, you know? And so I think it's once again that corollary between, like, the one hero that has arisen. I mean, the conditions were there, as you say, very rightly and primed to create him. Whereas in a movie like Showing Up, what you see is the milieu. What you see is the kind of, like, uh, um... Yeah, the jealousy playing out, the competition. Yeah. And then in a movie like American Fiction, you see someone doing what artists have always done, which is struggle with actual economics. And, yes. right. you know, the to sell out or not to sell out is one way to think of the question. Mm-hmm. That's right. But mm-hmm. another way to think of it is, you know, whom are you beholden to? Are you beholden to the great American reading public or are you Michelangelo beholden to beholden to Pope Julius? You know, well, someone's paying the bills right. at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and, it, you know— this is what it speaks to. And, like, I think that Monk, uh, the character in American fiction, lives here in a different way, but a similar way that um, the lead character of showing up. What's her name? Lizzie. In, the same, in, in a similar way that Lizzie lives here, which is sort of maybe a stretching and widening of, like, an artistic purgatory, right? It's like nobody thinks about, like, there's no corollary to, like, 
you know, I'm not Leonard Bernstein, but I'm a conductor too, man. Check out my SoundCloud. You know, there's like, there's no intermediary, at least visibility yeah. of that scene where like now there, you know, there's, there's so many other ways to be mm. a serious artist and, and have that be a role that has its own visibilities. And you see these, these questions of sellout or not, or um, it seems to me a figure that can take more plumbing, you know. That, that definitely, I want to see, definitely. I want. I want to see what that new figure, the everyday artist, um, can can sort of unfold to us about what it means to have a life in art. I really agree because I think, yeah, that 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 comes up against economic reality. That comes up against political reality. That comes up about uh, like uh, around what it means to be a person and not to be a genius. You know, right? And. Uh, I think that's really interesting and potentially fruitful. Yeah, that's so true. Um, right. Artists don't have to be geniuses. That's it's, right. And it, we get the genius model. We get it in something like Maestro. But, you know, I don't think Lizzie in showing up is a genius. No. And, and great and fantastic. That's right. She's worried about her kiln. Here's to not being a genius. But also geniuses, we see you. We see you. We hear you. We're here for you. <laughs> we'll be writing about you soon. Very much. This has been Critics at Large. Our senior producer is Rhiannon Corby, and Alex Barish is our consulting editor. Our executive producer is Stephen Valentino. Alexis Quadrado composed our theme music, and we had mixing today by Mike Kutchman. You can find every episode of Critics at Large at newyorker.com slash critics. See you next Thursday. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. <laughs>